0: Bibles to the book of Job. The book of Job, it's on page 417 in your pew Bible. I want to thank those who uh, really stepped up last weekend when we were away down in Portland, David Nelson, for preaching to you all uh, last Sunday, as well as all of the others who stepped up in order to help the logistics to go well last Sunday morning. Uh, We really appreciate it. Bethany and I went down to Portland uh, last weekend in order to be together as a family. As many of you know, um, we ended up miscarrying the baby that we were planning on having in November. And so a couple Fridays ago, we went to an ultrasound um, and, and found that out. So we thought we were 11 weeks along, but it turns out that um, the baby was lost at the eight-week mark, and as I as I was listening to the lady doing the ultrasound give us this news, it was incredibly it was incredible how quickly the doubting in the goodness of God came, how quickly the bitterness started to creep into both of our Souls, Kind of like when you have a glass of water and you take a couple drops of food coloring and drop it in, you can see it starting to spread and pretty soon it's through the whole jar. That's what it was like. The bitterness starts to creep in. The doubting of the goodness of God began to spread. And as we sat after that appointment, we were both in disbelief and we were both either asking ourselves or we were wondering the question, why? Why would God allow this to happen why would God do this the common question around circumstances like this when bad things happen in our lives is why does God let bad things happen to good people maybe we could change the question a little bit why does God let bad things happen to God's people so forget about everybody else. Forget about the world, okay? We can say, okay, well, the world, the world deserves the bad stuff. But, but as Christians, right, we, we love God and we bless God and we come and we worship God every Sunday morning. So why does God let bad things happen to us? If God is good, if God is for us, if God loves us, then why does he let bad things happen to us? Kind of one of those questions of the ages, One of those questions that caused people to doubt God even to begin with. There's so much pain and suffering and problems in the world just this last week. You see the wreckage in Nepal all over the news. Why does God let these kinds of things happen? And so as I was thinking through some of these things, God just so happened that in my Bible reading, I would come across a man named Job. And this was a guy who experienced unbelief paralleled suffering. This is a guy that had so much unleashed upon him that it was almost to the point of being unbearable. If you ask somebody who knows the Bible, next to Christ, who suffered the most in their life, well it would have certainly the answer would certainly be Job. Job suffered greatly. And so this morning instead of going back to the book of Matthew, I couldn't really get my mind into the Matthew gear over the last week. And as I was reading through Job, I realized this is what God has for us this Sunday. So we're going to, instead of looking at Matthew, we're going to look at really a bird's eye view of the book of Job and to see what our response to suffering should be. Because the fact is that as I look at all of you, I know that you all have experienced some sort of suffering in your life. Every single one of us have on an individual level. There have been lost children. There have been lost spouses. There has been the loss of financial stability, a loss of a house or a job. But I also know that you have suffered loss on a church level. When, when several ladies get into the car after church service and they go somewhere and then all of them die in a car accident. Or when your pastor's wife gets cancer and then she ends up dying. So I'm, I'm talking to people who have been through suffering, on, on a church level, who know what it's like as a church to go through some kind of suffering. But the question is, how are we going to respond in those situations, personally and on a corporate level? Because the fact is that we can't control what happens to us. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have the reins, right? We could say, oh, go this way, go that way. I don't want that bad thing to happen to me. Wouldn't it be nice if we could control what happens to us? If it were up to us, we would never experience anything negative. The babies would never miscarry. Our children would never get sick. The cancer would never come. Our church would never go through rocky periods if it were up to us. And so this morning in the book of Job, I just want to walk through some of the story and then toward the end pick out several reasons as to why God allows suffering to come into our lives. But before we go any further, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us that no matter what happens in our lives and no matter what you allow to come into our lives, you are there. And that you are our hope And that you are our redeemer. And that you are refining us as pure gold. Lord, I pray that you'll give us great understanding of how to respond when suffering comes as a result of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So let's refresh our minds a little bit on who Job is. He's the guy with kind of the weird name, right? I like to talk to new Christians, and then they run into this guy in the Bible. His name is Job. Well, oh, it's kind of a funny name. His name is Job. But his name is Job. And Job was from a place called Uz, not Oz. This is not the Wizard of Oz. He was from Uz. And so Job is from Uz, which would have been outside of, the, uh, of Israel, um, but he was from us. And in the first few verses, you see that he has 10 kids. Imagine that. Some of you think one's too many. 10 children. He had a bunch of sheep. He had a bunch of camels and livestock. He had all kinds of servants. He was considered, as the text says, he was considered the greatest man in the entire area. But not only did Job have a lot of stuff, but in chapter 29, Job says that he was well-respected by young men. He even says that when princes would come and he would be in the presence of princes, that the princes would hold their tongue when they were around Job. Job was a wise man. The princes wanted to hear what Job had to say. He says that he would take care of the poor and that he would help orphans. He says he was the father to the needy and that men would listen to his counsel. So this isn't just any old guy. This guy has influence. He is the one that people want to listen to. He is the one who has a whole bunch of stuff. And not only that, but he was a very godly man. So he wasn't necessarily just godly in his worldly wisdom, but he had great godly wisdom as well. He was a man who feared God. He was the kind of man who turned away from evil. In fact, he was such a godly man that for his 10 kids, he would sacrifice animals on their behalf in order to pay for their sins in case they had sinned. So Job was the guy who everybody envied. Job would have been the guy that everybody would have wanna, who, want to have been like. He was rich. He had a bunch of kids. He was healthy. He was generous. There was nobody like Job from, in all the land. So from our earthly perspective, we're thinking, as we read the few, first few verses of Job, we're not thinking this is the guy that something bad is going to happen to. We're thinking this guy is a great guy. God would never let anything bad happen to this guy. We kind of have that gauge in our minds that God isn't going to let bad things happen to good people because they're good, they're godly, they love Jesus, they go to church all the time. Whatever we have in our mind as the gauge, we think they do all of that, so God's not going to hurt them, God's not going to curse them in any way. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but in 2000, well I don't like flying, so in 2009 I was going down to Peru to help on a, a, a church basically construct a wall. I know you guys don't figure me as a construction type, dick especially, smiling back there. <laughs> But anyway, we are going down to help construct a wall inside of this church. And I remember when we were flying down, I looked at one of the pastors in the church. And he was on the plane up up in front of me. And I thought, he's a good guy. He's a really godly guy. I hate flying, but God's not going to let this plane fall with such a good guy sitting there. (laughs) And that went through my mind. But is that true? No. But we all have those gauges in our minds. We think that God is going to automatically make somebody's life a piece of cake just because they are seemingly a good person. And He's going to make somebody else's life miserable because they're not a good person. But as we can see in the book of Job, that's just not the case. In fact, the way suffering came into Job's life was very interesting. Look at chapter 1, Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, And from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, That there is none like him on the earth, A blameless and upright man, Who fears the Lord and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? is in the presence of God, and God brings up Job to him. Have you seen my servant Job, Satan? Have you seen him? There's, there's nobody like him. He is blameless. He is an upright man. He is my man. He is after me. He follows after me. And Satan basically says, yeah, that's only because you put a wall of protection around him and everything he has. That's, that's only because you are specifically protecting him from any kind of So Satan says, as soon as you pull down that wall and let me get at him a little bit, he is going to curse you. And so God says, okay, fine, go ahead, go, go. The wall is down, the wall of protection, the hedge of protection is off of Job. Go and do what you want to Job, just don't kill him. So this conversation happens between God and Satan. And Job has no idea that this is going on in the heavenly somewhere or whatever. Job has no idea. Clue. He's on earth doing whatever it, is, whatever it is that he is doing until all of a sudden these messengers start coming to Job. So the first messenger comes to Job and he says, The Sabians, this group of people, have killed off a bunch of your servants. Pretty bad news. I mean, maybe some of the servants were his friends. Maybe some of the servants were some extended family. Who knows? But pretty bad news. But another messenger comes and says that a fire came from heaven and burned up a bunch of Job's livestock and burned up his shepherds too. (laughs) So a little more bad news. But then another messenger comes and says that Job's camels were stolen and more servants were killed. All of this is bad news. All of these servants are being killed and his animals are being killed or stolen. And I think all of us would be pretty bummed out about that. But then a final messenger comes and says to Job that a wind had come and blown down a house that all of Job's children were in. All ten of his kids were in eating and drinking and the house collapsed on his family and none of them lived to tell about it. So his servants are dead. His animals are killed or stolen. And his children, all ten of them are dead. I think we would all consider this suffering to the extreme degree. So the big question is, how is Job going to respond? How would you respond to this kind of news? All of your earthly possessions gone. All of your children gone. How do you respond? Look at how he does in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. So Job gets up and... He shreds his robe off. He shaves his head, which those are a sign of mourning in those days. And he falls on the ground and he worships God. I don't know about you, but if somebody told me that all of my stuff was gone and my daughter was dead, I wouldn't feel very worshipful. I wouldn't want to worship God in that moment. But it's exactly what Job does And look at the words that he utters after hearing this horrific news in verse 21. And Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So the words that flow from Job's lips during the hardest part of his life are God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Of the Lord. And my friends, this is not how you and I generally respond to losing a ten dollar bill, let alone our children. Yet in all of this, Job did not sin, and Job did not charge God with wrongdoing, which is incredible because this is exactly how we often respond when something bad happens. When something bad happens, we tend to fall headlong into sin and blame God for all that has happened. We lose our job, the bottle comes out, and we drink away the problem. We lose our boyfriend, we get the half gallon of ice cream and finish it. In times of loss and suffering, our tendency is not to respond to God in worship, but to hide from the problem in any way we can, and to fill the void, to fill the pain in whatever way that we can. Our response is to fill the hole that suffering has created. Our children are gone. There's suddenly a huge gap, a huge hole in our lives and we want to fill it with whatever we can to make it feel better. But this isn't how Job reacts when all of this happens. Satan thought that if he could take everything away from Job, that Job would curse God to his face, but instead he gets on the ground and he worships God. He does the exact opposite of what Satan thought that he would do. And so Satan goes back to God, right? You see in the text, Satan goes back to God. He's in the presence of God again. And basically the discussion goes like this. Yeah, okay, that didn't work. That didn't work. I didn't, I didn't mess Job up too much with taking away his kids and taking away his stuff. But if you let me inflict pain onto him, physical pain onto Job, then that's when, that's when he'll curse you God And so God, with the same confidence, says, go ahead. Go ahead and inflict bodily pain onto Job. And so Satan goes and he strikes Job with these boils from his head to his feet. But then the text says again that Job did not sin with his lips. He responds in the same way. All of this suffering has been dumped onto Job. All of his stuff is gone. His kids are gone. His health is now gone. Satan had the clearance to do anything to Job that he wanted to do except to kill him. But when it comes down to killing Job, Satan didn't really want to kill him. That's not what Satan wanted to do. Satan didn't want to actually have the opportunity to stick a sword into Job and kill him. That's not what he wanted to do at all. What Satan wanted to do was kill Job's faith. This is one of the key things that we have to know and remember during are times of suffering. And I think John Piper said it well, that Satan aims to destroy your faith, but God seeks to strengthen your faith. When times of suffering and struggle come, Satan's hope is not to destroy you and your body. It's to destroy your faith. It's to rattle your faith. It's to shake you up in whatever way he can concerning your faith, concerning your trust in God, concerning your belief in the gospel and the goodness and greatness of God. That's what Satan wants to shake up. He's not as concerned of killing you. That's the easy thing to do. He wants to wreck your faith. But suffering is the tool that God uses to strengthen us. Suffering is the tool that he uses to root us further into himself. So if you take suffering away from the Christian life, you take away some of the most intense and important times of growth. Suffering has a way of growing us more deeply and more profound in in ways that nothing else can. And Job would know God so much more deeply as a result of all that has happened happen. Just like kind of what we began with. We all want to have the reins of our lives. We all want to be able to control anything that happens to us. I'll I'll go this way. I'll go that way. and, and, And feel as though we have the power and have the control. But we don't control what happens to us. We don't control the bad things that come because we wouldn't want them. But when those things come into our lives, they root us more deeply in God. They strengthen our faith. And that's what Job is going through. So he's battling through all of this loss. And then all of a sudden, as you start reading through the pages of Job, you see that these three friends come around. Friends come around. And they sit with Job. And they see Job. And they see how much distress that he's in. That they don't even say anything to him for a week. So his three friends come. And they sit around in a little powwow. And they don't say anything to each other for a whole week. Because of the distress that they see in Job. So as these middle chapters of Job unfold. You can can see that these friends really don't have wise words for Job. They don't have the truth. They don't have God's word for Job. Anything they offer him has no comfort at all. In fact, when you read these chapters, it's hard to decide sometimes if what his friends are saying are biblical or not. Because they evoke God's name. They might try to pull out some biblical principles, but they're always fashioned in a way that is worldly. They're never God's pure truth. They're always... Mixed up in some sort of way. It's kind of like the truth mixed with lie kind of a thing. It's the worst kind of lie. Because you can't really tell what's true and what's not true. And that's what Job is hearing from his three friends. That the advice that they're giving to him isn't great at all. And so the overriding message that Job's friends give to him. Are that he must have done something wrong. That he must have sinned. That in some way, he grieved God in some sort of bad way that Job is not willing to tell them what he did. Otherwise, all of these things wouldn't have happened. You know, they had that gauge too. Okay, well, you're a bad guy. You must have done something bad. That's the only reason God's bringing the bad stuff in your life. That's the advice that they're giving to him. So some frenzies are, right? Job just lost almost everything. And these friends come up to him and they tell him that the calamity in his life, the struggle and the problems that are befalling him are due to his own sin. But again, if we're honest with ourselves, that is often our assumption when someone is going through suffering. We assume that God is punishing somebody for doing something wrong, but we need to be very clear that that is not always the case. Suffering doesn't come into our lives just because, oh, you must be doing something wrong. Oh, they lost their spouse, they lost their children or whatever, so that must mean that God is displeased with them. No, that's not it at all. So if Job's friends are wrong in their advice, and we know they are, then why did God allow Job to suffer? Why did God allow Job to go through all that he went through? Why does God allow us to go through suffering? And so I just want to pull out three reasons over the course of this book to see why God allows us to suffer. And the first one is to establish our hope in Him. In chapter 13, he says, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. So said in a different way. Even if God kills me, I am going to hope in Him. So Job is willing to trust the one who took everything away from him, yet he declares, even if God kills me, I'm going to trust in him. If somebody came into your house, and they stole everything you had, and they took your children away from from you, would you trust them? No. You You wouldn't trust somebody that took something from you? And Job here is acknowledging that, although... I know that this is from the hand of God. I know that God has allowed this to happen to me. I am still going to trust in God. I am still going to hope in God. So when God allows things to happen, that, that, or, or allows things that we love to be taken away from us, we are still to trust in Him. You have to treat Him to, like somebody who stole something from you. You remain hopeful in Him. That we're willing to say that no matter what happens in my life, I am going to hope in God. So that when we're going through something individually, or we know somebody who's going through something, or our church is going through something, we must hope in God. He's our only source of hope. He's the only one who has the answers. He's the only one that can provide the compassion and the love and the hope that we need in these circumstances there's something hopeful about the word hope isn't there you just say the word hope and it and it just makes you hopeful we we often refer to it as the light at the end of the tunnel the darkness is surrounding us but but through all of it we we see a light coming we know that it's going to be okay we we know that although god doesn't feel present in these moments of suffering that he is present and that he will make things right he will make things to come out, all to our good, and to His glory. God allows suffering in our lives to establish our hope in Him. Second, God allows suffering in our lives to remind us that our Redeemer lives. To remind us that our Redeemer lives. In chapter 19, verse 25, He says the words, For I know my Redeemer lives. Just, just settle in on those first few words. For I know Job had a knowledge of God. And this is, this is so important. Because when you're going through suffering, when you're going through trials, hardships, your thoughts about God and who He is are incredibly important. What comes into your mind when the, when the trial comes is it, God, why are you letting this happen? Or is it, I know you're there. I, I know my Redeemer lives. The, the knowledge of God, you continue and you start to speak truth to yourself. Because we're in, when we're in suffering, our emotions are high, aren't they? When we're going through suffering, when we're going through a problem, the emotions are flaring. Everything's going on and we can't really see clearly. We feel like we're in some sort of cloud. And what you know to be true about God has to be crystal clear in those moments. Because you're in a fog. You're not thinking right in those moments. And so what comes into your mind when you think about God has to be clear. It has to be sharp. Your knowledge of who God is is what holds you in place. You have to be prepared for suffering with a proper knowledge of God. Job had a solid knowledge of God. And this is a way that we can preemptively help ourselves before suffering comes. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm not really going through anything right now, you always know something is going to come. So you can preemptively help yourself a whole lot by rooting yourself in the Bible. But taking your Bible and learning it and studying it and understanding as much as you can about God as possible so that when the suffering does come and that cloud of suffering is over you and you're not thinking straight, you'll remember what you've studied. You need to know God. You need to know God about Him deeply in order to make it through times of suffering properly. But what Job declares that he specifically knows about God in this suffering is that God was going to redeem him. He knew that God was going to vindicate him. He knew that the God that he worshipped wasn't a dead God. But that He was alive. That He was a live Redeemer. He wasn't a dead Redeemer. And so however Job understood God as Redeemer, we can't be totally sure, but we can look back on this side of the cross and see a whole lot fuller of a picture, can't we? When we think of our Redeemer who came in our place, who came to this world to save us from our sins, to save save us from ourselves, to save us from the world, to save us from the devil, to give us new life, Job knew that his Redeemer was alive. But you know, our Redeemer would come and He would die. When He came and died, but He would take back His life again. And He would save all those who trust in Him. So, if you're here today and you're wondering if you could be redeemed, if you could be purchased from the slave market of sin, then the answer is yes. And Jesus Christ stands as the Redeemer, the one who was alive from eternity, the one who came to earth and died, but the one who took up his life again. And the final reason I want to pull out as to why God allows suffering in our lives is that God allows suffering into our lives in order to refine us. Chapter 23, verse 10 says, But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold, Suffering is the furnace that God uses to burn away everything in our lives that doesn't belong there. I like to watch some of these gold mining shows. I think I've told you guys that before. I like to watch some of those gold mining shows on Discovery. And one of the shows that they showed, they they mined all the gold up, right? And then they took the gold to this guy who would then purify it. And so he would take the gold and he put it into a furnace and it would all melt. And so it just looked like a lava kind of thing. So it would all melt and then he would pour it into a mold and then it would, you know, it would cool down and everything. But what happened is all the impurity would rise to the top. So the gold looked good when it went into the furnace. It was goldy. It looked great. But when it came out and he poured it into the thing and it cooled down, you saw all the impurities come up. And then they would scrub away the impurities until you had a beautiful gold bar. And this is what God does with us with suffering. He takes us and he puts us into the furnace. And he allows the heat to go on until we don't think that we can handle it. But during those times we have to remember that he... That it is he who is doing it and that he is doing it for our good. That although it doesn't feel good to be in a furnace, that it is for our good. And he's going to bring himself glory as a result. We have to take the mindset that the suffering we're going through is to refine us. That the suffering we go through isn't something that is simply happening at us. It's not something that's just happening to us. This is something that's happening for us. Suffering is something that God brings into our lives that is for us. It is happening to refine us into pure gold. But again, on this side of the cross, we have so much more clarity as to what, even in comparison to what Job would have known. Because when we go into the fire, and we're going through suffering, we're coming out in the hopes that we're looking more like Christ. Christ's likeness is the goal when we are being refined. That is the goal of God to make us into make us more like Jesus. So we have hope. When times of suffering come and trials come, we have hope. We have Christ because we know that what He came and did was on our behalf. When it comes to our Redeemer, we know that Christ literally came and redeemed us out of the slave market of sin by dying for us on the cross and paying for our sin debt and coming back to life again in order to give us victory over sin and death. And when it comes to being refined into pure gold, we know that the refining process of suffering will produce Christ-likeness. So why does God allow that suffering to come into your life? To establish your hope in Him? to remind you that your Redeemer lives, and to refine you into pure gold. So what ended up happening to Job? He goes through all of this suffering. His supposed friends come up to him and give him all sorts of bad advice, give him all sorts of what they called comfort, and Job defends himself to them. He believes he has a case before God. He knows that he has not sinned before God in order to bring all of this onto him. But at the end of the book, the most incredible thing happens. God speaks to Job. He speaks to Job. And basically what God does is take Job by the shoulders and just shake him a little bit. He asks Job all of these questions. Like, who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you have my power? Do you have my knowledge, Job? Are you the one who knows everything that's going on? Can you pick up Leviathan out of the ocean? God's just proving his point. I got it all, Joe. I'm the one who's in control. So if I can do all of these great things, if I was the one who laid the foundations of the world, don't you think I got you? Don't you think I can manage your life? Don't you think I can... Direct your paths and know your paths and make sure that what happens to you is for your good and for my glory. All these questions just pouring out in order to prove to Job that God was the one who had him. And the only thing that Job can really do in this moment is acknowledge that God's ways are best. And so then God pours out blessing onto Job yet again and he gives him more than he ever had before. How are you going to respond when suffering comes upon you, when your stuff gets taken from you, when your family gets taken from you, when your health gets taken from you? We have to get to the place that we trust in God and his plan for us more than we trust in our own plan for our own lives where we are steadfast in our faith and clinging to the promises and the truths of God, that no matter what happens in our lives, that we're holding on to Christ in whom we hope, that we're remembering our Redeemer who has saved us from the slave market of sin, that we're trusting, although it burns, in God through that purifying process that is making us more like Jesus. But you know, when you look at the book of Job and the life of Job and all that he went through, it is so important that we don't stop there. Because Job, and it, it's not an island unto itself. Job and what happened to him points to another one who would come and endure great suffering. He points us to Jesus. He was a godly man, but he wasn't a perfect man. He was sinful like you and like me, but Jesus was perfect. And he didn't deserve any bit of suffering that came to him. So when the question, why do bad things happen to good people, comes to mind, we need to change the way that we think about it. So why do bad things happen to good people? As R.C. Sproul says, that only happened once, and he volunteered. The very Son of God who would come and not just experience loss and physical pain, but he would be sacrificed by his own Father. He would be crushed by the hands of his own Father. And when we experience suffering and loss, we may not be like Job where God gives us a bunch of kids and cattle. But what he will do is open our eyes more clearly to the great blessings and joys that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that you are a hope in times of trial. That in those times of trials, we can know that our Redeemer lives. And that we can know that as we undergo suffering, that you are refining us. It's pure gold. You're making us more like Jesus as a result of this suffering. Lord, I pray that for those who are going through suffering right now. Lord, we pray that they will help, that they will see these things as Job did but we thank you most for what Jesus did as the suffering servant who had come, who wouldn't do anything wrong, who wasn't deserving of anything evil to be brought upon him. But we thank you that he willingly came and took our evil upon him, the evil and the the wrath that we deserve, took it upon himself and bore it for us on the cross and gave us his own righteousness that he won in his life. Lord, help us to see these things as we're undergoing suffering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. you stand with me?